This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. The stories of the lives of our saints covers a multitude of events, and for some, their canonization may actually take centuries. But for others, like Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta or Blessed John Paul II, it may happen much sooner because their lives were so visible and the wonders for which they were responsible were so great that their causes advanced much quicker. And much of that was because the technology with which we live speeded up the studies of their lives. But today I want to tell you the story of a young girl named Anna Marie Rady from several centuries ago. And she didn't spend much time on this planet Earth and wasn't well known because she lived a quiet but holy life focused on God, pretty much distant from public view. Yet the witnesses for her cause included not only family, particularly her father, but many associates, religious, and others whose testimony covered many volumes. But perhaps the time was not right then for her recognition as a model for us and for our children. And indeed, she was a model, a model of goodness and piety out of the public view. But you see, in today's fast-paced world, we do tend to take God for granted, except maybe for an hour or so on Sunday, if we do that even. But in Anna Maria's life, God would ultimately come first, and her life is a, a fascinating journey towards sanctity, and perhaps a lesson for all of us and our own special relationship with God. And to tell us her story, we have the writings of her father, her immediate family, her priests, friends, and the nuns with whom she would eventually live, and these actually would take many volumes to tell. So it's really their story about Anna Maria that I want to tell you. Anna Maria was born in Italy way back on the 15th of July in 1747 in Tuscany. And from her parents, she followed an ancestry that included a direct lineage of nobility, so that in her day she could be expected to be an heir to the best of what society could offer, which quite naturally would include all the trappings of a socially prominent lifestyle, a life filled with love, comfort, and ease. Her earliest years were quite ordinary, but she seemed to be wise beyond her years. As with most children, Anna Maria was full of questions, and one of them quite naturally was, Who is God? Well, she would be told what God is, what God did, and a number of variations which didn't seem to satisfy the inquisitive mind of Anna Maria. And then she again inquired about God, and her mother told her that God is love. Well, that was it. She perked up and became very enthusiastic. It was the trigger that unleashed a new torrent of love, and she was now filled with a new question, since God had now been identified to her satisfaction. But that was only a transition. It was a springboard to her entire future. And to her, if God was indeed love, 
Her question then was, what was it that she could do to please him? Well, this would become her lifetime priority. She would have to do everything in her power to please God, but in her young mind, she would develop the thought that this was to be between her and God alone, not for the whole world to know or to see. It would have to be very private, a very private gift just between her and God. And the amazing part was this was the rationale of a young child, and the resulting relationship would last throughout her life. Now, her desire fit in perfectly with the family life the Radies had. Her father was a very devout, and, of, and her mother was also, but it would be her father who would ultimately have the greatest impact on her life. In fact, her surroundings were so heaped with matters of the faith that all but one of her siblings would enter the religious life. It's interesting to note that since the family was very pious, well, naturally they would have an abundance of religious art, statues, and pictures prominently displayed in their homes. I personally believe this is a good idea, and while we may wish to exercise more religious thoughts or activities out of sight, one has to remember that out of sight leads to out of mind. And that can keep us from our good intentions of prayer and meditation. In today's world, we certainly are inundated with a myriad of distractions that keep pushing God further and further away in our priority scale. Well, such was not the case with Anna Maria. In and around their property, they had a number of religious art and statues, among which was St. Francis of Assisi, which became Anna Maria's favorite. And as the time passed and she learned more about Francis, he became as one of her patron saints. And she was inspired by his life to want to serve God by sacrificing her comfort and devoting her life to one of poverty. While the family could afford to give her nice gifts and such, she would rather not receive them, and as such, that would be her gift for God. She would often be found in front of the statue of St. Francis, deep in prayer, and as time passed, and she was now about seven years of age, it should be mentioned that at this particular time in Italy, it was common for the children to make their first confession several years before their first Holy Communion. This had a very strong impact on her. It was not just going to confession, it was receiving a special gift from God to forgive what she might consider little shortcomings on her part. Anything concerning sacraments, sacrifice, or gifts from God made a strong impression on young Anna Maria, and all the realization of these gifts would grow as she herself would grow. Years later, her father would write in great detail many of the comments and attitudes of his daughter. For example, receiving the sacrament of confession and her own uh, thought was, how often do we go away and 
refused pardon for some slight from our neighbor by remaining aloof or withholding our love or keeping some grudge against them. Well, that was what she thought as an alternative for the actions of people who went to confession. If we think about it, well, that's a pretty deep thoughts from a child so young. But it does give us an insight as to the spiritual maturity of this remarkable little child and the importance of confession and how we approach it. Anna Maria's father soon felt that this child had a very special calling for religious life, and somehow in his mind he would decide to make a conscious effort to give her his full attention by providing a clear and concise way for her to satisfy her need to serve God. He would carefully observe her activities, and as time passed, he became even more convinced that she had a very special calling, as well as a very special relationship with Almighty God. She would see God in all things around her, and he would teach her, her father would, about the special devotions to the Sacred Heart of Jesus devotions that she would dearly love and follow for the remainder of her life. She would be in their garden at home and and see God in the birds, the flowers, the sky, and immediately think of God and praise Him for His power and glory and for making these creatures' lives as gifts for her. And as I mentioned, more and more her father knew that religious life would be a calling for her. And when she was nine years old, he would arrange for her to enter the monastery of St. Apollonia in Florence as a student. Now this was a surprise to many of their friends because not many young girls would not, well, they would not receive the more intensive education, tending instead to marry and to raise a family. Anna Maria was overjoyed because she felt that at St. Apollonia's she would have greater opportunities to both worship and serve God. Now, it must also be pointed out that the whole atmosphere at St. Apollonia's was both simple and austere, and the students followed very closely the daily activities of the nuns. Well, it didn't take Anna Maria long to fall in love with these daily activities, and even though she found the studies to be very difficult, she tried very hard and applied herself diligently She was just barely an average student as far as learning was concerned. Now, it must be added that the nuns, regardless of her grades, considered her a sweet-dispositioned young girl who obviously loved being there. One thing must be noted in particular. Although her real love was heightened by her nearness to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the tabernacle, she made a concentrated effort not to appear overly religious because her relationship with God was personal and not for show. As a result, on the outside, for all the world to see, she was just another ordinary student. But 
Apart and away from the eyes of her classmates, she was deeply involved in developing her own special devotions to Almighty God that would be her private relationship with God himself. She was now about 10, and she would carefully hide these special devotions from her classmates as well as the nuns. She had learned at a at a very early age that it was best to keep your special prayers and devotions just between you and your God himself. Consequently, she was one normal young girl when she was with her classmates, but someone entirely different when she was alone with God. The nuns recognized that she was very special and and noticed her longing reaction when she saw other girls receiving Holy Communion. Her love for God became obvious to the sisters, and they made arrangements for her to receive Communion earlier than normal. As much as she wanted to receive Holy Communion, she never would have asked for permission as something special for herself. But, as I said, the nuns recognized her longing and allowed her to receive her first communion at the age of ten, which was much younger than the usual. For for her first communion, she needed special religious training with directions on what she should do, and, again, she wanted no personal attention shown to herself. She was reluctant to spend extra time in the confessional because that would also draw attention to herself. And so she elected to use her own father then as her spiritual advisor. Since she felt a close bond with him and knew him to be both a devout Catholic and a very knowledgeable man with whom she could confide She knew how strong his own faith was, and so a very special relationship began with her own father as her spiritual advisor, a role he took very seriously, always concerned with privacy, and not wanting to ever draw attention to herself, she made him promise to destroy all her letters to him after they were read and answered. He provided her with sound advice, which she heeded without question, and years later he would be able to provide a very strong insight into her devout spirituality. Although she was seen to the casual observer as an average young woman, she was soaring in her love for God, and was now around sixteen years old, She was liked by all and and would go out of her way to be of help to other students who may have a special need or problem, and at the same time, she was always ready to help the nuns in any possible way that she could. Since she was living under a religious roof, so to speak, she was active in as many religious and devotional activities as possible, wanting to devote her entire life to the service of God, whom she loved so much. She had also developed a strong attachment and love for the mother of God, too. And as I mentioned, at the age of 16, she was still considering her options, 
religious life was a prime consideration where she could devote all her energies into serving God. But she was just 16. She had visited a childhood friend who was about to enter the Carmelite monastery of St. Teresa in Florence. They spent a little time together, and Anna Maria was still in the monastery when she had a, a sudden feeling of tremendous happiness and joy. This was a, a different kind of sensation that she had ever known. It was more like a feeling. It was, in a way, like a calling, or perhaps might even be described as a summons. This was unusual, and so she ran quickly into the stillness of the monastery. And then she heard a voice speaking to her. The voice was sweet, and the message was simple. I am Teresa, and I want you to be one of my daughters. Had she actually heard this voice, or was it her imagination? She wondered, and she was puzzled, and hurried quickly into the nearest chapel, where she rushed directly to the altar. And then the voice spoke to her again. More precisely, the voice said again, I am Teresa of Jesus, and I say to you that you will soon find yourself in my monastery. Well, suddenly a supreme calm fell over Anna Maria, and she now knew where her life was going. She applied and was accepted at the Carmel in Florence, and, and to enter there, well, it would be just after her 17th birthday, in September of 1764, taking as her religious name Teresa Margaret of the Heart of Jesus. She became a Carmelite. While she always felt unworthy to be a nun, she loved her life in the convent, which consisted at that time where she lived of thirteen professed nuns and two novices. While at the same time, the postulancy usually took three months, and now Sister Teresa Margaret's postulancy lasted four months due to an abscess on her knee that required surgery, which she endured without anesthesia. At that time, before their final vows, the sister would take a short visit home to make certain that the vow would be permanent. She made the visit, but the departure from home was difficult because of the love and support she had received from her father, who, like her, was a best friend, her very best friend and confidant. She returned to the monastery, and she would take her final vows. As a novice, Teresa Margaret's work would be primarily caring for the sick, more and more, she would spend her spare time helping in the infirmary. When one of the nuns was undergoing difficulty, she would likely spend the night with her in case she was needed. A witness at her profession on March 12th of 1766 said of her, and I quote, At the solemn moment of profession, she seemed to be transformed into an angel, and so deep and powerful was the impression of love that her outward appearance made in the circle of sisters around her so powerful that they were moved to restrain their tears. Well, she was assigned to the infirmary, where she served with 
great love, often quoting the phrase, God is love, and marvelous wonders seem to happen. During an epidemic, she seemed to have supernatural powers. There was an aged nun who was deaf and could not communicate her needs, and, and no one could communicate with her, not even the confessor. But Teresa Margaret spoke to her quietly, and the old nun understood everything Teresa Margaret had said to her. Then another time she was in the refectory with another sister who was suffering from a severe toothache, and Sister Teresa Margaret saw her suffering and kissed her lightly on the cheek, and the pain immediately disappeared. When a tremendous epidemic hit the monastery again, her strength seemed to increase. And then two nights later, she stayed in the infirmary so long that she missed dinner. However, four months before, Teresa Margaret had made a pact with Sister Adelaide, an elderly nun in her care. The pact was simple. When Sister Adelaide died, she was to ask God to permit Sister Teresa Margaret to join her quickly. Now, there was also a strange incident at that time that was recorded. One of Teresa Margaret's friends was becoming a nun, and she said to Teresa Margaret that before taking the habit on such and such a date, that she would come and visit her. And Teresa Margaret replied, that is, if you can see me. When asked what she meant, Teresa Margaret changed the subject. On a Sunday, the 4th of March, Teresa Margaret asked their priest if she could make a general confession and receive communion. It was as though she thought it would be the last confession. He was confused because she was a little less than 23 years old and in perfect health. But the older nun died, and very soon Teresa Margaret was stricken, and the doctor, well, summoned, but he wasn't too concerned. But he did say that she appeared in great pain, and later, pressing a crucifix to her lips, she passed from this life to the next, making her pact with the old nun a reality. But her body began to discolor and become almost unrecognizable as though it were decomposing before their very eyes. Arrangements were hurriedly made for a quick funeral. The prioress sprinkled holy water on the body, praying that it might be preserved until the funeral the next day. But later that day, there were some religious and doctors entered the, uh, the area to check the body, and what they saw was unbelievable. All signs of decomposition were evaporating, and her color was being restored so that she looked lifelike and like she was just sleeping. Her body was examined by doctors a week after her death, and they testified there was no decomposition, and that her eyes were open and her cheeks were rosy and fresh, that this was like a miracle. And then there was a drop of moisture on the face that exuded a heavenly fragrance. Her father quoted her as saying from infancy, All I want is to be a saint. 
and now a series of intercessions on her part appeared to be happening and were attributed to her. But the centuries would pass, and her life would be studied, and the volumes of testimonies were evaluated, and then on March 19th of 1934, Pope Pius XI canonized little sister Teresa Margaret of the Sacred Heart, a saint. She had achieved her goal. And so we have another friend in heaven who taught us by her simple life of dedication and love of God that with our prayers, if we reach for the sky, we can surely touch a star and find God. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.